Gracious Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our King, the one who has come to rescue us and redeem us and save us from ourselves, from this broken world, from our sin, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We pray that you would be all in all this morning. Christ, be center of our minds, center of our hearts, and help us to find our hope and delight in him this morning. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. This is the final week of the Christian year, so if you are an Anglican nerd and next week when you come here, you start saying Happy New Year, then you can make everyone look at you and you look weird, okay? So prepare your hearts right now. I'm going to say it next week because the Christian year turns over at the end of this week. But this is the final week of the Christian year, which means today is Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King Sunday. This was always my favorite Sunday, so much so that it caught my imagination that I thought, hey, that would be a great name to have a church named after. And so there you go. There you go. So this morning, reflecting upon our readings, I want to consider together the king. This morning, I want to consider together the king and his kings. That's what I want to focus on this morning. And this afternoon at our state of the mission, I want to reflect on the kingdom or else the kingdom that the king has come to set up. So first, this morning, the king and his kings. The king and his kings. I'm not a big life verse person. I'm, I'm not, that's, that feels like a Christian bumper sticker, sticker or something you put on their fridge. But if you force me to have a life verse, I will pick a life pericope or else a life story, a short little story that comes at the end of John chapter 21. It's the very last story or else the very last conversation in the very last of the four Gospels. Jesus has a threefold inquisition, a question, and a threefold exhortation to Simon Peter, my favorite disciple, my favorite apostle. He said to Simon Peter, do you love me? And Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you better than everyone. Everyone, Jesus said, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do tend my sheep. Do you love me? Lord, you know my heart. He's frustrated at this point. He's frustrated. I do love you. And he says, lastly, feed my sheep. Peter, be a good shepherd, in other words. Be a good shepherd. Feed and tend my sheep. And then Jesus tells Peter what kind of death he will die. The Peter who just denied Jesus three times is given this threefold question and this threefold exhortation. And then Jesus tells what kind of death that Peter is going to die with the final exhortation. And he says, Peter, follow me. Follow me. Stop looking at everyone else around you. You, Peter, follow me. Now, I imagine that this was Simon Peter's life verse. And so that's why I pick it as my life verse. Peter's theology was certainly shaped 
by this image of the Good Shepherd, by this threefold charge of Jesus. Here from his letter, for you, you were straying like sheep, Peter writes to the church, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, the Lord Jesus. And he concludes this letter by exhorting, even as Jesus exhorted him, he exhorts the elders among you in the church as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock, he exhorts them. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It, it affects Peter's theology, and it's right at the center of mine. And yet, I don't feel like I really am beginning to understand it until the last few weeks. Now, many of you probably know that the Latin word for shepherd is pastor. That's just literally what it is in, in Latin, pastor, and it comes straight to us in English. And for good reasons... Modern church people, especially evangelical church people like you and like me, we mostly consider shepherding to be about the vocation of priestly ministry or else pastoral ministry. We imagine the task of shepherding is, in other words, primarily a religious task. It's a religious task. But particularly for the Old Testament prophets and throughout the Bible, shepherding has more to do with kingship with kingship than it has to do with priesthood. More to do with kings than priests. It's primarily about ruling, not religion. They definitely overlap. So there's a lot of overlap in this idea, in this image. But when the Bible speaks about shepherds, the dominant image, and if you can, if you can forgive me for being a little bit cliche or funny or, I don't know, double entendre, the ruling metaphor... The ruling metaphor is kingship. It's the dominant image. It rules. It's kings. So when we think of shepherds, we should think of kings. And I've known this for a while. Peter, tend my sheep, Jesus says. Feed my lambs. Follow me. What does he mean by this? Be a king. Rule in my kingdom. Rule my people with gentleness. Protect them with your life. Abram was a herdsman. God called Moses from the pasture to deliver his son from Egypt. God called a shepherd, David, to rule as the king over Israel. This is the dominant idea. Let me, let me say it from Deuteronomy 17. This law given to the kings that will come in Israel. When you come to the land, you may indeed set a king over you when the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. 
You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is the law given to kings in Israel in Deuteronomy 17. And I can hear Jesus saying this to Peter in his threefold exhortation. You, Peter, are not to rule like the kings of the world. You're not to make alliances, strategizing, building wealth and power, chasing your passions and guarding your lineage, protecting your house. Put down your sword, Peter. Stop fighting. Put down your sword. Here is your shepherd's crook. The king who sits on the throne of my kingdom will copy Holy Scripture. He will read Holy Scripture all the days of his life so that he might fear the Lord his God. And as my king humbles himself underneath Holy Scripture, bowing his knee before the true King, the God of heaven, this will make him lowly in heart, humble beneath even the lowest in my kingdom. The last shall be first, Peter. The humility of my King will bless my people. Humility and Holy Scripture will be the inheritance from generation to generation. I've always thought of the Apostle Peter, the first leader of the early church. And this is clear from both Holy Scripture and from the testimonies in the early church. The first leader of the early church, I've always thought of Peter as primarily a religious figure, but I think a little bit more today that he was a king. A new kind of king to be sure, but he was a king. He was a shepherd king. Let me show you. From our readings, we hear this overlap of shepherding and kingship every morning in our daily office as we pray, which we read this morning, Psalm 95, or else the Venite, which is a fancy Anglican way of saying the first word of Psalm 95 in Latin, which is Venite, which means come, come. It's an exhortation, come. He invites us. And who is the us in Psalm 95? We are the sheep of his pasture. We're the sheep of his pasture, and we are invited to come and bow down and kneel before who? The King, the Lord, our Maker. 
just before our Old Testament lesson that Aaron read for us from Ezekiel 34, the chapter begins with a threefold condemnation of Israel's kings, of the shepherds in Israel. Ezekiel 34 and verse 2, the Son of Man, he prophesies against Israel's kings because they feasted while their sheep starved. And so we heard in our reading that the fat... Right? The fat will be judged. He's, he's speaking about fat kings who are feasting while their sheep are starving. Verse 4, they showed none of the pastoral qualities, the shepherding, the kingship, the ruling qualities that were required of them to care for the weak and defenseless in their community. They were harsh, the text says, with the sick sheep. With the sick sheep. And verse 5 those whom they should have been harsh with, they were not. They allowed their people to be scattered. And this is Ezekiel's language for exile, to be scattered throughout the world, all over the earth, to be consumed by wild beasts in the wilderness. This is the threefold condemnation of Israel's kings. Israel's kings were bad shepherds. And therefore, verse 7, right before our reading, from Ezekiel 34, I, the Lord God, am against the shepherds. I'm against the shepherds. The Lord God answered this threefold condemnation of kings in our reading from Ezekiel 34. And it should, as, as Aaron was reading, it should sound familiar to us because it's such a big idea in the New Testament. It's repeated over and over again. Verse 11, Behold, I, Yahweh says this, I, I myself will search for my sheep. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. Verse 20, Behold, I, I myself will judge. Verse 22, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So this is the Old Testament. These are Old Testament readings turning our attention to the Gospel. Hear this again from Matthew chapter 25 and starting in verse 31. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and here shepherding alongside kingship, the Son of Man, this is one who will be exalted to the right hand of the Father. This is Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Kingship language. Before Him, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit what? The kingdom. The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Matthew, the Gospel writer, clearly has Ezekiel's hope in his imagination. It is fulfilled in Christ. The Lord God, the Son of Man, has appointed a forever king from David's line. This is the exalted man. One shepherd shall feed them. 
Jesus Christ is king. This is clear in the Gospels. What kind of king is he? He's not, like, he's not supposed to be like the nations around him or else the Gentiles rule, Gentile rulers who rule with power. Power is the way the world and the way Google defines what it means to rule. This is how politics is described in our, in our day. It's a struggle for power, merely that. And it definitely involves power, but it is not just that. The shepherd king, he's gentle. He knows when to feed his sheep. He knows the difference between sheep and goats. He knows when to be gentle and protect the defenseless. And he knows when to be swift and clear in judging the wicked. And this is why when we hear these readings on Christ the King Sunday, we, if you're not, I don't know if you're like me, I hear all of this and I, oh, it makes me nervous. Because he's powerful and he's almighty, but yet he, he sees us, he knows us, and he's merciful. He knows the sheep. He knows his sheep. Christ has been raised from the dead. And this is kingship imagery. He's ascended. He's erased from the dead. Then comes the end, Paul says. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all things, all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so this is not merely destruction or else judgment on the fallen nations, all the wicked kings and the wicked kings in the line of Israel and in the world it is cosmic. He is restoring the cosmos. He is saving us from death. And so Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords as we prayed this morning, even over death. So therefore, here is the main exhortation on Christ the King Sunday. Come, venite, come to the King. Come with boldness with humility and vulnerability, but come with boldness before the throne of grace. Come. Come now. Don't wait. Today is the day. There's a reason why we pray the Venite every morning because we don't want to. We want to hide. We want to hide in our sin. But he invites us to come and come again. The hope of the psalmist has come and he reigns right now. This is the gospel proclaimed every day. Come to Christ. Come again. Bow down and kneel before the Lord, our maker. Humble, humble yourself before him. Christ is king. You don't have to be afraid. You turned away from him yesterday, maybe even last night. Don't be afraid. His mercy is new this morning. Turn around today. Turn around today, venite, come, fall down, look up and see his face. Fall down and look up and see his face. It is full of mercy for wayward sheep, for stupid sheep, full of mercy. And he looks down upon us with all authority. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is here. The gospel is here. 
The king stands right before your face and my face today. So come, come as vulnerable sheep to your shepherd. It's the only way to come. Come with vulnerability, and as we approach his throne of grace, come with boldness, come with confidence before his throne. Jesus Christ is the hope. He is the hope of Deuteronomy. He's the hope of Ezekiel. He's the hope of the psalmist. He is the king. He's the long-awaited king. He is the deliverer from death itself, not just exile in a foreign land. He was in David's line. He was not a foreigner. He did not build an army. He did not make alliances with Egypt or Rome. He did not acquire many wives, nor silver and gold. He, the king, devoted himself to Holy Scripture. He kept every word, every statute. He never turned aside from the commandments of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Christ is our hope. Christ is king. He rules and reigns right now. So here's, here's the next question. There's, that's the exhortation. That's not just for people who've never believed the gospel before. It is every day. Every day, come, come. Shout your prayers to God, come. So here's the question that I want to briefly consider at the end. How does Christ rule now? Because I don't see it a lot. Do you see, do you, I, I feel so distant from his rule and reign in my life. How does he rule? And I'm more, I'm more and more convinced of this every day. Christ rules in the church. In the church. And without the church, there is no salvation. This is the language of the fathers. Without the church, there is no Christ. And Christ is king over the church. Just, just after my life verse if you could call it that, my life paragraph in John chapter 21, if you turn the page, if you turn the page, the disciples asked Jesus a good question, a really good question. They're paying attention to this kingship language in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They asked a question about the kingdom and then, what did Jesus do? He ascended, he ascended to his heavenly throne as king. And the story of the Acts of the Apostles, it's a surprising and challenging at every point kind of story. It continues, and, I, and I'm more convinced of this right now, even than really early this morning and several weeks ago, and back in March when I first started yammering about a lot of these things to the vestry, the Acts of the Apostles continues God's answer to our need, to our present felt need for Christ the, the King to reign on earth. What does that mean? Acts chapter 1, 11 apostles gathered on earth just after the ascension with all of the disciples. They gathered together and they prayed and they waited. They waited for the promised Holy Spirit that the angel said, stop looking up. 
Wait, wait, he's coming, he's coming. And then, who stood up? Peter. He stood up among all those gathered and announced a kingly proclamation. He said this, God's kingdom, God's kingdom is ruled by 12 kings and we have only 11. He didn't say it exactly like that, but this is what he's thinking. He's thinking, we only have 11, and so what did they do? What did the apostles and all the disciples there gathered? They deliberated together, and they put forward two faithful witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They were there with them. They were there with them from the beginning, and then they let Christ the King choose. They let God the King choose, and the lot, they cast lots, and it fell on Matthias. This is important, not only theologically, but practically 12 princes or else kings underneath the king of heaven in God's new kingdom. This is what the Acts of the Apostles is describing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter now empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit, by God, standing with the eleven, the text says, with the full authority of God's king, kingship and his rule, he announced that Jesus is the ascended king. He is David's son. This is his first sermon. It's pretty much everything that I've been saying here this morning from different texts. David's Lord is seated on the throne forevermore. Bow down before him, all you crucified him. Bow down. He's here. Turn around. Repent. He's here. Peter would still require more threefold exhortations directly from the Lord. It's hilarious. I love, the, I love Peter because he still doesn't get it. He still is a, he's still a stubborn fool who does the same things over and over again. It gives me hope. I hope it gives you hope. Go read Acts chapter 10. He would need to be humbled many more times by the Apostle Paul and others and still, and still with boldness and vulnerability and weakness, with authority and vulnerability over and over again, Peter continues to stand up and speak as a steward of the king. In my priestly ordination examination, I vowed, and we just renewed our vows uh, at, before our synod this last year, and it was a really sweet moment. I vowed to humble myself below Holy Scripture for the good of the church. I vowed to be diligent in prayer and in reading Holy Scripture. I vowed to, here's the hard one, to lay aside all distractions so that I can pray and read Holy Scripture. To faithfully feed you with God's Word. To faithfully feed you with the sacraments. Tend my lambs, feed my sheep. This is, in other words, my life verse. This is my life's calling, and I'm slowly learning. I'm slowly learning, and it took Peter decades. I imagine it took him most of his life that this is not simply a religious calling. It's kingship. It's, it's for all of life. It's not just for a tiny religious space. It's for everything. 
everything. God is king over everything for the temple, for the church, for homes and mealtimes and common prayer and caring for the poor and healing ministry and the oversight of property and the distribution of money and feeding the hungry and teaching and preaching. And this is just in the first five or six chapters. In God's economy, pastors are humble rulers. They're rectors, that's Latin for ruler, stewards of the king. I want to reflect on this a little bit more this afternoon. They are called to rule, but not as a Gentile, not not domineering, as the Apostle Paul says, but with a shepherd's crook, not a sword, priest kings, not pagan tyrants with authority and not invulnerable, not all-powerful. They have authority from on high mixed with vulnerability, and this is the place of flourishing. And this calling is not sequestered into neat and tidy religious spaces. It never was intended to be that. It was always meant to go to the ends of the earth. The New Testament is exploding and expanding a reality that has always been true. God's kingdom is breaking in everywhere, and his kingdom must break in everywhere, or not at all. This is what the gospel is coming to accomplish. So in your household chores, children, if you happen to pastor a church or maybe you're snaking a clogged drain on Thanksgiving for four hours, or you're playing on a soccer team or coaching a soccer team. Maybe your thing is animal husbandry, which is, that means taking care of animals, if you like animals, catechizing converts, catechizing children, serving on a vestry, whether you're caring for baby dolls or baby humans, all of this oversight is shepherding. It's ruling. It's kingship. Christ is king. You are the ruler. You are his steward. You are called to rule and bring his dominion to the ends of the earth. Everything is his. One day it will be clear. It will be clear as day. Everything is his already. And every one of us is training to be a king or a queen over the earth. That's what you're doing. That's what discipleship is. That's what it means to reorient our lives and our hearts around Christ and his church. And one day every knee will bow and the whole earth will be restored. But right now, the kingdom of God, it has to be. This has to be the kingdom of God. Christ's kingship has to be in the church. It has to be where we bow our knee before Christ the king in the church. To faithful stewards, to humble kings who bind and loose with authority and vulnerability, with boldness and sacrifice. So I invite you, come, you who are blessed by my Father. Come, let us heartily rejoice in the strength of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving, with Eucharist. For He is our King and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Come, church, come to Christ the King's table and feast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
you please stand? Let us confess our faith together in the words of the Nicene Creed.